0: This podcast is made possible by listener support on Patreon. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash Sam Near-Death Experiences. Why should I be frightened of dying? There's you no know, reason for it. You better go sometime. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. Thank you so much for for listening today. I hope you're well wherever you are around the world. Um, thank you for your patience. I know it's been a little while since I've uh, put out an episode. I once again am coming to you with a broken heart um, for my girlfriend and her family. Uh, they have experienced a tragedy in the past few weeks. Uh, my girlfriend's Younger brother, who was twenty one, was was killed in a car accident. It was a shock to all of us, and and a terrible, terrible loss. He was such a great guy, and 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 he was truly, truly special. And, and there really aren't words to to capture um, just what to say. I know that, you know, we read these stories and we hear about accidents that happen to people and, and you never really think that it's going to happen to to someone close to you. And um, it's been very difficult these past few weeks. And, you know, all I can say is we just got to love our friends and family every single day and even strangers you just you can't take a single moment for granted we you know we read these stories about people who suffer terrible close calls with death and and you know we tend to go through them and but we don't really discuss you know what happens to their family and and the people around them and 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 those who don't have a near death experience but who who pass on it's 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 very hard to deal with and um, I'm grateful that that by reading these stories that there can be just a slight amount of comfort gained you know I'm, I'm not one to when something like this happens to, to really talk about near death experiences or anything but um, every now and then if I'm asked about you know these stories that I've read I'm I'm very happy to to try to give some idea of what people experience. And I I'll be the first to tell you that I don't know what happens when we die. And it seems that everyone has a bit of an individual experience with with death from these stories, but all I can say is that it's it's I think the people who share these stories who have had a near death experience and, and put them out there are extremely brave and courageous and and we owe them a a great debt for for sharing their stories and, and telling us what happened to them. It's something we might talk about later in the episode, but these these stories, though they're all different, they, they share share some commonalities and, and that can be a great comfort in, in times where, where you're heartbroken and in loss, at, at a loss for words, and and, and um, terribly missing someone you love. So, today's episode, we're going to be reading a near-death experience from Mexico, um, a woman named Hafur, and she. It's kind of unclear. She didn't really have a medical condition or anything that caused this. Uh, I believe she said that she had low blood pressure or, or some kind of fainting spell. Um, she just went unconscious kind of sudden suddenly and so uh, she just has quite a, a very interesting experience symbolically and and conclusions that she reaches from her experience are very interesting. And this is translated from Spanish, but it, it is a very, uh, clear and, and, um, detailed kind of experience that she goes through. She, she's, uh, does a quite good, uh, quite a good job of describing it and talking about different things that she learned and, and trying to, to grasp all the, the subtleties of, of not being able to have the, the right words to describe things. And so, uh, I, I hope you enjoy this this story. I really did. I, I found this on the Near Death Experience Research Foundation website, nderf.org. I highly recommend you go check out some of the stories on there if you are interested, and in I'll post the link in the description. So uh what else? I'm I'm changing up the music a little bit, so don't get mad at me. <laughs> I'm a musician. I have uh so many different little musical pieces and things that I have nothing to do with, so I figured I'd start um, maybe just adding some different background music in here and there. so I hope you like that. Um, it's fun for me to get to share little things that I make so so um. I think that's I think that's about it. We'll we'll just dive in, and then, like I said before, we'll we'll uh, have quite a bit to talk about uh, once we're done with the story. So, here is Huffer's near death experience. I suddenly found myself in complete darkness. There was nothing to grab hold of until I remembered that I had a body. When I felt love, a light came on within my heart, and little by little, it grew larger until it illuminated my body so it was completely floodlit with its own light. I sensed that I was in some kind of cave or dark tunnel, and towards the back, a small light appeared that grew larger to the degree that my own light grew. It got nearer, as if it were a reflection of where I should go. In the darkness, there were many shadows of people around me, walking without feeling or purpose, like zombies. I saw on my right a being who didn't show me his face. I thought it was my dead grandfather, because of the suit of English cashmere, his cane and hat that he wore when he was alive. He indicated to me that I shouldn't try to speak with those people, because they would pay me no mind. They were in their own unconscious dream, walking like robots. This made me sad and feel compassion towards them. I decided to continue on my way towards the light at the back of the tunnel and came out upon a very beautiful little beach. There were many ranges of colors that I have not seen on earth. They were very clear and sharp, but didn't hurt my eyes. There was very white sand, and the blue of the sky and water were very lovely. The color of the rocks, etc. weren't reflections of anything. They shone their own light. The figure on my right, who was guiding me, stopped. I could not see his face. Though we were at a small, enclosed beach, there was a hill that served as a place for projecting my life from beginning to end several times at first rapidly, and afterwards more slowly. It was amazing how my life was shown, with events I had completely forgotten about and others that were so insignificant that I felt like I was seeing each frame of the personal movie of my life on Earth. I realized I understood everything with great clarity and super lucidity that I had never experienced before. I discovered that I had personally chosen to take on a physical body, and have the life experiences i was having i realized i had wasted time in suffering and what i should have been doing was using my freedom to choose true love and not pain in all that came into my life i saw that i myself had designed the life i would lead before voluntarily coming into this world i saw that my freedom within a physical body to be found only by consciously cultivating happiness in all my thoughts feelings and actions because i had designed or chosen my own destiny before taking on a physical body i realized that there was no judging or punishing god like religion say there is and it was my mind with an expanded consciousness that judged itself and sifted its actions through the filter of perfect conscious love I returned to the front of the beach and saw on the bottom something like an island in the form of a mountain. At its peak in the sky, a very white sun spoke to me telepathically and made me understand everything about life. Suddenly, coming out of this light, I saw a myriad of beings dressed in white. They followed someone who carried himself with a great magnificence who had a white beard and wore a kind of tunic-like vestment that was whiter than that of the others and was very beautiful. He came down on my left to where I was standing, without touching the earth, floating above the peaceful sea. On his breast he wore a gold cross of Malta, surrounded by a circle that was also golden. He looked at me with serenity. At the end of the procession of beings was my late father, who also wore a white tunic, and I asked him telepathically, What are you doing here, since you have already died? He told me in like manner that he was in the world of the living and that I came from the world of the dead on earth. This greatly surprised me, and I remembered that I had come from earth and had left my three small children alone. I looked at the bearded man and asked him to allow me to return to be with them because they needed me. He agreed and told me I could go back. All of a sudden, I went to a place lower than the images on my left and saw a series of rocks in the sand jutting out into the sea. I saw myself sitting on the largest rock, which was between the beach and the sea. I wore a white tunic that was semi-transparent, like organza, decorated with twinkling gold stars. I was surprised to see myself pregnant, since my marriage was not a happy one, and the last thing I wanted was to be pregnant again. Suddenly there emerged from the sea, I only saw the upper half of his body, a beautiful being, quite young, of white complexion, with very large turquoise-blue eyes, and golden curly hair. He smiled at me, and told me telepathically that he was my true husband, and sent me his love. I felt infinite tenderness. I understood that the kind of love closest to divine love in this life is that which we feel for a small child. As this wonderful feeling came over me, I heard within my heart a voice that said, Through love you will understand everything. The essence, the essence, the essence. This was followed by a feeling of great peace mixed with joy within my soul. I sensed that my life would change for the better, and this has been the case ever since because I have a greater understanding of my life's true meaning. I then turned to see the light in the sky. A telepathic force poured a series of codes filled with millennial wisdom into my mind about creation, the world, my life, and that of all other beings that inhabit all universes, everything being eternal, spiritual life, everything belonging to it, and that the distinctions or differences that we make in this life are done out of ignorance, or because we have forgotten this truth. As if by a giant magnet, the light drew me to it, and I was submerged in its interior, where all there was was light. I forgot I had a body, and felt fused with the light. In that moment, I experienced a feeling of plural unity and understood everything with extreme clarity. I discovered what reality is and saw and understood with my consciousness so alert that it allowed me to comprehend everything with infinite perfection, without any doubt. From my heart sprang an aha feeling, As if there was something I had always known but forgotten, and that I can't explain with words or human language. I felt like a co participant of creation. A part of what I understood and remember today is we live in a plural unity, or oneness. In other words, our reality is unity in plurality, and plurality in unity. I was everything and everything was me, without essential differences other than in temporal appearances. There is no external God, but that God is in everything and everything in God, just as life itself. There is no God outside ourselves, but is, rather, in everything and everything is part of God, as is life itself. God is everything and nothing at the same time. Everyone and everything, or temporal phenomenon within this dimension, is where it should be because it emanates from the blueprint of a shared dream, if we can call it that, that is repeated indefinitely until we understand what is essential or real. Everything is part of an essential game of life itself and that to the degree that we live by true love, unconditional and universal, the closer we are to an understanding of what life truly is, which is true happiness and perfect wisdom. Everything is experience, and that this life and the next are essentially the same, because everything is God. Nothing is outside of God, just as nothing is outside of life itself. Death is a metamorphosis of time, One more illusion from our mental concepts. Essentially, time does not exist, nor does space. They are illusions of our creative mind that plays a game of self-deception in the creation of events. I includes we, and are like a mirror where we perceive the reflection of our reality in its many facets and illusions. The creator is eternally creating, and one of the creations is the practice of conscious love one learns to paint by painting that's why this temporal human illusory creation exists as though it was a matrix within another matrix and this within another multi-dimensionally until we wake up i experience something that can't be transmitted with words but that can be expressed as the essence of life is its total nothingness. Please understand nothingness as something that has no intrinsic substance, but is rather constructed by a multitude of phenomena, which in turn are formed by other untold multitude of phenomena to the point of infinity. I understood that intangible, indescribable life is all that exists. There is no death, It is only a description to show the polarities in the world of phenomena. Consciously living by love is the essence of life itself, and is made manifest or materializes in this plane of existence as a cohesive force to recreate itself in multiple forms, as a game in which nothingness recreates itself in temporary illusory events. The known universe is a fraction of infinite reality that by love has become finite pieces in our temporal hands i learned thousands of other things without end and it is difficult to express in words because words are insufficient they can't describe what i experienced in this other state of consciousness that was much clearer than this one when i returned to this life I felt I had fallen into a very heavy space and that my body was as lead and my mind was the same and very slow. I saw my loved ones, family and friends as if they were nothing to me. They were only reflections in the great theater of life and each one voluntarily agreed to play a part in order to learn more and better how to love. I spoke with them to tell them of my experience, and they looked at me as though I were crazy. I realized they didn't understand what I was saying to them. Little by little, my experience grew faint, but there appeared many new special experiences of telepathy, intuition developed between others such as voluntary out-of-body experiences and involuntary by location. I especially cannot control the latter and I would like to know, using conventional language, how this phenomenon happens. I only know that everything is eternal, pure consciousness, and that we are in a mental dream that is permanently being constructed as a dynamic of consciousness that knows itself and recreates itself through each one of us. That we are the point of emptiness, where the void or nothingness of the universe becomes aware of itself it is really hard to explain this. I know that everything I saw originates from thoughts or the universal mind. It is projected in images and events that interact with the lucid consciousness as an experience, and that this whole experience is part of the infinitude of that which is real on every plane or level of existence that we want to invent or divide into pieces so that our temporal mind can decipher it, despite its limitations. I believe I understood that what we call God is the silence of indescribable life that is in everything, and everything is in it. As an analogy, we could use the image of steam, converted into water, and then into ice. Once it is in that state, ice forgets that it is steam, with its capacity for expansion. This is what happens to us in this plane of consciousness. I believe I understood that what we call God is the silence of indescribable life that is in everything and in which everything exists or is within it. A marvelous, loving, and conscious eternity. Note, I feel that all the images that were created in my mind during this experience before entering into the light, are symbolic thought forms of something perhaps more profound that could serve in support of a translation of that which is essential experience. It is impossible to explain with our limited human language, yet I am now trying to decipher it little by little. I noticed a change in the speed my mind worked, and developed my intuition or universal perception of life, It is difficult to translate with my physical brain that which is essential or infinite with conventional language. Perhaps through the art of telepathic communication, soul to soul, it can be done. I will continue trying to do this and will try to see if someone who has experienced the same phenomenon or has had a similar experience has another part of the verbal puzzle. Among all of us, we can put together a clearer picture that can benefit those who do not read. I ask your indulgence for my limitations and hope that I haven't confused anyone. I will conclude by saying, From but one piece of clay many forms can be made. All mental designs crystallize in fleeting forms of nothingness. Okay, so that was Hafer's near-death experience. I, I don't really know where to start. It was so dense with all this information and insight and wisdom and, and images and symbols. It's, it's quite extraordinary. It was an amazing story, but it's <laughs> quite daunting now for, for me because I don't really know where to begin. I, I thought I might start with uh, this line that stood out to me towards the end of it although I couldn't really decide whether I should start the, the analysis with it or end it with it, I might do both. Uh, it was the, the bit that said, Note, I feel that all the images that were created in my mind during this experience before entering into the light are symbolic thought forms of something perhaps more profound that could serve in support of a translation of that which is essential experience. It is impossible to explain with our limited human language, yet I am now trying to decipher it little by little. So that makes makes me feel a little better that she says it's impossible to describe with with limited human language, because that's also what I, I feel like I might try to do. This is as far as I've you know read so far in any near-death experience, this is the closest to to her describing what, what seems to be the uh, symbolic grammar of of these experiences and not only these experiences but also that which we uh, experience in dreams, visions, um, trance states, etc, maybe, maybe even drug uh, induced hallucinations, those sort of things these what she seems to be describing is is archetypes or, or these, uh, symbolic images that are are inbuilt, are, are built into us. It, that's probably a better way of saying it. That these I mentioned uh, a few episodes ago the in William's near death experience, how his story had all these elements of of uh, symbolic grammar that that we see pop up in mythology and stories and culture and, and dreams that there's all these little chunks of these situations in his near death experience that form a a sort of a vocabulary of, of, uh, I don't know, stories of, of uh, mythological motifs and, and things like that. So here, she kind of just explicitly comes right out with it and says that these Images and these things that she experienced are 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 some kind of uh, language that they're they're a language of describing what she calls the essential uh, experience or that which is, I guess, the most deep within us, and and that is the reason I wanted to start with that is because that is what I want to try to explore when I go through these different images that pop up in near death experiences i want to explore them and try to understand them and see see how they pop up in other aspects of of human life whether that's in stories or mythology or dreams or what have you that these the whatever this symbolic language is that is impossible to to really capture with you know our our normal language it's something very essential and and deep within us, that it's something that is inborn, um, that is nascent, living within us, and and that it uh, and that it is automatic. It is uh, it is natural. It it's not something that we. Create. It's we might we might provide the specific forms and and images. The, for instance, she sees her father and her grandfather, and and people often see specific family members or or religious figures, um, or you know certain cultural uh, symbols, what have you. But the what they are representing is something that is uh, universal and and deep. And so that's where I'd like to start with that idea in mind and, and trying to, um, I don't know, use her her explanation there as, to try to guide our understanding of, of why I, I try to look at these different elements because they're something that are essentially human, that it is... I don't I don't care whether you want to um describe this as coming out of our unconscious biology or or even a spiritual supernatural place that the I don't think we can really tell at this point where these images come from but what we can say is that they're not man-made that they are something unconscious and that have their own autonomy that that come on their own uh, sort of will that it's a natural, spontaneous kind of process that emerges with within somebody's experience, um, and it's absolutely fascinating that that we see so many parallels in dreams, in mythology, and story, um, trances, all that sort of thing. We're um, going to get into some interesting things about shamanism um, as we <laughs> explore. <laughs> Uh, This story, and I get to bust out my uh, anthropology textbook, which will be fun. But I think we'll start. Jeez, this is just so (laughs) there's so much in this. I'm gonna start with uh, kind of the first one of the first images that we we get with this story is that she was in the darkness, and there were people walking around. That were like zombies, she says, and zombies, um, completely, kind of unconscious and unaware, and and just in that, just in that little description we have from the beginning, that uh, we hear that she's not supposed to to interact with these people because, uh, what does she say? Um, they were in their own unconscious dream, walking like robots. This made me feel sad and compassion towards them. Uh, just from this very start, we get um, kind of a, a a I don't know a a a value placed on consciousness that to be unconscious to be unaware is is clearly a bad thing. Just from the get go in this story, that that uh, a consciousness is is clearly highly valued and and. Being self-aware is something that is uh, quite valuable. So, and, and then we, the first person or, or character or whatever you want to call the, the first uh, being that we interact with is um, who she believes is her dead grandfather. Um, but she cannot see his face. And, and I thought that was a very interesting detail because it's something that I've heard in in various dreams and stories uh, that not being able to see somebody's face, there's this figure that you know yet you can't see their face. That is a uh, common motif in in uh, you know dreams and mythology, and I, I believe even in uh, the story of Cupid and Psyche in Greek and Roman mythology. Psyche, the bride, is is not supposed to see Cupid, her husband. It's this kind of hiding one's identity, yet you know they're there kind of thing. Uh, And I looked it up, and I found this really cool answer on on Quora. There was someone asking about a dream. Uh, The question is, Why do I keep dreaming about a lover I don't have and whose face I can't see? Why do I miss him every time I wake up? And there was a very interesting reply from uh, it was from John Brousseau, uh, conductive therapy counselor at conductive therapy, who actually gets into a, a bit of uh, Jungian psychology and, and what this particular image might mean. So I thought that would be cool to read. Um, your dreaming mind, your unconscious mind, is telling you that you need to find out who you are. Your dream lover is the ability to know and love who you are. This ability is far more rare and significant than we realize. Much of what we have become is what others in society as a whole wanted us to be. Therefore, we have not yet begun to know, much less love, who we are. Our dreaming mind thus depicts the us we need to discover as a dream lover. The frustration you feel upon waking from such a dream is also a part of the dream statement. Saying that unless and until you discover the aspects of who you are that you, of who you are that you at present know nothing about, you will be frustrated by life and not content with it. A clue to the self-discovery is that it will involve you asking yourself far more than you do what you want. Who we are is expressed in what we want. There is a reason we haven't asked ourselves what it is we want. Doing this is viewed by us and everyone else as a threat to what others want us to be. This is why the psychologist C.G. Jung labeled this process of self-discovery the process of individuation. We learn first who we are to our family, and by extension, our society. And in order to find out who we are to ourselves, we will have to embark on a spiritual quest that takes us away from home and loved ones. This sacred journey is depicted in the sacred texts of countless cultures abraham arjuna and his pandava brothers moses joseph the prodigal son buddha jesus etc it is a fundamental aspect of human development along with the frustration is an almost silent hope that you may actually find him this hope is due to the fact that there is truly the possibility of experiencing this life realizing self-discovery you should be aware that there you should be aware that there is a tremendous cost to finding yourself. And count up what what that cost <sighs> and count up what that cost is before you embark on a journey of self-discovery or you will never get far. It will cost you friendships and loved ones and social status. But if you succeed in the quest for individuation to any extent, it will pay huge dividends in the ability to experience contentment, and contentment is great riches. I know you may have a deep need for a partner in life. I am not minimizing this need. In fact, it is this need that a wonderful picture of In fact, it is this need that is a wonderful picture of the need for self-discovery. If you are a person with a great need for a partner, then you can begin to see that you likewise cannot possibly con- be content unless you marry those aspects of yourself that you have yet to discover. The two need the two needs are a perfect picture of each other. And if you manage to find a partner but don't find yourself, that will keep you from fully experiencing the joy of having the partner. So don't neglect this need by fixating on your need for a partner. So that, that it's not to uh, minimize this experience, but but merely to show that this is a fairly common motif and, and a recurring pattern in people's in her life, that the uh, the being or or person that doesn't have a face that is unknown to you is is a I guess a beckoning to discover more about oneself. And in this particular case, it is who she uh, she says is her dead grandfather. And and it's interesting that it's a grandfather because it's has um, someone. As we'll see later, her her father is also deceased, and her father shows up. But the first one to meet her is the grandfather, and that is kind of a an archetypal significance of of the wise old teacher or guide, the wise old man, the wise old woman, um, someone knowledgeable to uh, guide one, guide one through uh, this other realm, and that's something that we we. Encounter quite a bit in in these stories is often a grandparent or or father or, or mother or someone who's passed on, and so I the reason I bring all that up is just to again to to ground this image in our everyday experience to show that it is is something that we we don't just see in near death experiences, but um, we see it every day, and it is I would say made even more important for us to understand and try to learn more about in the fact that uh, this is something that someone experienced when they were in this near-death state, that it, it kind of raises the importance to understand the, what these images show and express. Um, so from there... We find ourselves on a beach. Uh, she moves on in the experience to a beach, and she mentions that there are many different colors that she didn't, she couldn't see on Earth, and that's something that we we hear all the time from near-death experiences that there's a wide variety of colors and sounds and and uh, I don't know sensory experiences that we're just not privy to here on earth that we're so limited in our bodies that we can't experience these, these beautiful things. She mentions the rocks and the sand and the, the blue of the sky. One, one interesting thing that she mentions towards the end of this paragraph is that she, uh, she says, the color of the rocks, etc. weren't reflections of anything. They shone their own light. Now I'm not particularly knowledgeable about philosophy but I found that that little detail there quite interesting that she, these objects and things they shone forth their own light that they weren't light was not being reflected off of them that they they have their own reality that shines through and they're not mediated by our limited human senses that these objects are the the real thing that they're not are our, our uh, neurons firing and receiving light through our eye or anything this is they are existing on their own merit, so to speak. so I thought that was a very interesting little detail. I wish I had more to to say about it. I'll have to keep uh keep trying to learn some philosophy and stuff so uh, and then we. We have another mention of this figure on her right, who we, she originally described as her grandfather. She mentions again that she cannot see his face. And then she has a life review, and, and this was a, a little bit different because she says that it's, she goes through her life several times, and, and first time it was very fast, and then it kind of gradually slowed down and she says that she uh, remembers all these little details, uh, these little insignificant things that um, had completely, you know, completely been uh, forgotten for her, and she gets to re-experience those. And and she had, she says, she has a, a kind of a hyper lucidity, a uh, extreme clarity of of thought and, and perception. And then she goes on to say that she discovered that she had personally chosen her own life and her body, and she had chosen the experiences that she would go through on Earth. And this is an idea that we see all the time in, in near-death experiences. It's it's probably one of the, I don't know, f- fundamental takeaways from, from reading near-death experiences is this idea that we... Um, we choose our existence and our all the challenges and opportunities that come to us we we go through all of those before incarnating on earth we choose our family our friends and we we can even arrange to meet certain people at certain times in our life and there's definitely I don't know about you but I've definitely had that feeling that uh, I've met a certain person at just the right time in my life and it feels it's kind of spooky. It's like, oh, there you are. Where have you been? <laughs> you know, that's it's a very kind of weird feeling. But that is something that often gets emphasized in near death experiences. So that that is cool that we have that uh, mentioned here. It was mentioned in the the last episode we did in Laura's that she had kind of arranged with her son uh, her. Her, uh, the baby she just gave birth to to be his mother and that was one of the reasons that she had to go back so it's well it's, it's quite a comforting idea to know that if you're going through a hard time if something has happened that it's kind of meant to be and that's you know something that we say to one another all the time is this kind of conventional wisdom that everything happens for a reason and if some people might not want to believe that and some people might want to believe that it seems like life is a bit more palatable if you do believe it so ultimately that's up to each one of us but and then she goes on to talk about how there was no no God to punish or judge her that uh, she says that it there I realized that there was no judging or punishing God like religions say there is, and it was my mind with an expanded consciousness that judged itself and sifted its actions through the filter of perfect conscious love. So here we kind of have an explicit description of of I don't know, the the joining of the conscious and unconscious minds, the Joining together of oneself as, and that being the judge of, of one's conscious life and our conscious actions, that's a very interesting thing to dive dive into. Um, yeah, I don't. <laughs> it's it's quite quite profound, and and it's something that we we often hear in other near death experiences. Now, some will have a quite. Uh, classical god image of an, an old man with a beard or, and who's who's giant and or a, a loving caressing hand or a a beautiful light that that people take as god and so there's there's quite a bit of variation but usually what people tend to say is that there's no judgmental god that you often judge yourself in the perfect light of love that with this perfect clarity, you can see all of your see- through all of your illusions and foolishness and all the bad things that you've done that you see them quite vividly and and are able to uh, learn from them, I suppose so then she goes and uh, she I guess has a conversation about life with a uh, a sun, a, uh, a brilliant white sun, sun, and this is an image that we've we've encountered before. Uh, sun being light, being consciousness, being um, well, like I just talked about these images of God, the the kind of great great light that is uh, everywhere, that is omnipresent, that. Is uh, all loving and all powerful. That's uh, it fits in with this image of a a white sun, and she then describes a a kind of procession coming out of this light that she's engaging with, and they. She says that they followed someone who who had a great magnificence that he was very, uh, she was wearing a, a white tunic that was very beautiful, and they, they had a, a cross of Malta on on the kind of chest area of this tunic. Now, I, I had to look up what the cross of Malta was. It's a, I guess it's called an eight-pointed cross. If you, you can look it up, or I'll just try and describe it. It's kind of like there are four uh, V's, the the letter V, and they kind of form a cross, and it's it's pretty cool looking. It looks very medieval and very. Uh, I was reading that it it kind of had its origins and uh, around the time of the Crusades, and and kind of developed from there. But um, I don't know. I don't know particularly what, what uh, this. Cross of Malta what the meaning was to her. Perhaps she had some connection with this particular cross, this this image, the symbol. Um, but it is pretty interesting. It's surrounded by a circle and it was golden so obviously that's something of, of great value And the circle being an image of totality of wholeness and uh, the cross representing uh, perhaps her her uh, belief in, in Christianity. Um, and then at the end of the procession was her father. And and he also was wearing the same thing that all these other beings did. And she asks him, oh, what are you doing here since you have already died? And he kind of, he, he reverses it on her and he says that I am in the, the world of the living and you are in the world of the dead, which is very, very interesting. That if you think about it, he's, he's kind of right that I would say if there's one thing that characterizes our our world, this this realm, is that everything is finite and everything dies. Everything is is in the process of dying at all times. And, and so that's a cool kind of reversal that this place, wherever she is, is that is where life is. That is where life resides. And perhaps it just takes on a, a, a short, short, uh, I don't know, uh, it lives for a, a short interval in this world of the dead it's like a, a wave passing through water and then it crashes on the shore and it returns to to where it came from that the world beyond that that is where life originates it's quite interesting um, and then she she realizes that she had left her children and she asks she left her children back on earth and that she's in this other realm and that then she asks to go back. Um, and this is kind of, this is a bit of an interesting uh, bit of the of the story because usually, you know, when someone, you know, usually what happens in a near-death experience, as I'm sure you're aware of by now, is that when someone realizes that they, oh, I need to go back, like I've got kids and they need me, then they head back to their body. But in, in Hafer's story, she goes to a, a different place. She says she went to a place lower than the images on my left. And I'm not quite sure what that is referring to, but uh, she is back in this this kind of beach area. Now, we discussed on the, the previous episode, Laura Laura's uh, episode, that we discussed the image of a beach being kind of uh, a great image of, of the kind of border between two worlds, between, um, I don't know, heaven and earth, this kind of place where the opposites meet. And in here, she she is clearly right in between those. She says that uh, she sees herself sitting out, out on a large rock, which was between the beach and the sea. So this is quite a, again, a very potent uh, symbol of of what is going on with within this experience and within her so she she finds herself on this rock in between the water and the land and she is wearing this kind of beautiful white tunic perhaps like uh, the tunic the what the people before were wearing which would suggest that maybe she's become one of them or something like that and she notices that she's pregnant and I, I think that's a very interesting idea uh, metaphorically. In, in dreams, it, it might refer to if you were pregnant or had a new child in a dream, it could be something like there's a new part of yourself that wants to be born. There's something new in you that is is m- becoming manifest or something like that. It's, it's And it's often a mythological motif. Here, obviously, you can make an illusion or a... Uh, comparison with the uh virgin mary she uh Hafer didn't have um any sexual relations in this experience and yet she's uh pregnant it's the i don't know if you it's it you could compare it to a kind of immaculate conception i suppose which is an interesting idea uh both psychologically and and mythologically um, but that's quite interesting that we have it here. And then and then there's this man that emerges from the water. And there might be some kind of symbolic relation between those two things, between uh, her pregnancy and and um, having a baby within her that is about to be born, and then this man that emerges from the water. Uh, water and, and the ocean often in, in dreams can represent that, which is unconscious, which is... Uh, primordial, that which, which all life emerges out of, and you know, scientifically, <laughs> that appears to be the case—that all life emerged out of the sea. Um, so that's just a, a, an interesting parallel, nothing more than that. But um, here we have this man that that emerges, who's beautiful, and he has large turquoise blue eyes and golden curly hair, and he tells her. Telepathically, that he is her true husband, and he gave her all his love and tenderness, and then she says that she under- she understood that the kind of love closest to divine love is this life, uh, in this life, is that which we feel for a small child. Now, this was fascinating to me, honestly, that she has uh, a true husband in this other realm. And the reason it was fascinating is because I have heard of this sort of thing in other circumstances in cultures cultures around the world. I was I was thinking about doing an episode for for this for the podcast uh, about um a particular tribe from New Guinea and their spiritual beliefs. I I didn't end up doing it, but while I was reading about it, one of their spiritual beliefs was that they had a spirit uh wife or a spirit husband and and that is something i had heard before in another case where i was reading a book uh, by a psychologist who was talking about her uh, certain um native women of, of various tribes around the world um would have spirit husbands and when these spirit husbands would, would come, they would have a kind of, I don't know, shamanic relationship with them. And, and so I began doing some more research, and I, I'm tempted to, to read this entire uh, article on uh, spirit spouses just because it's so fascinating that this is, is such a universal human uh, human thing. It, it's It's virtually worldwide that, that this belief in, in having a, a spirit uh, so-called so spiritual partner within you that you see in your dreams or trances or what have you and have a relation with that this is such a, a fundamental human human capability, a human uh, characteristic. Um, let me pull it up here. I don't know how long this is going to take. Uh, I'm, I'll read as much of it as as I think is necessary. But if you it starts to get boring, just skip ahead because I find it very interesting. I I studied anthropology, and I I, I want to know what is well, like Hafir mentioned, what is the essential experience of human beings, and and that's why I I go to through all these things with trying to, to look at them and, and ground them in our experience. So this is, I'm, I'm reading from Wikipedia. Don't hate me, I know. <laughs> it's not a particularly uh, um, academic source, but I think it'll do for our purposes. So this is uh, on spirit spouses. The spirit spouse is one of the most widespread elements of shamanism. Distributed through all continents and at all cultural levels, often these spirit husbands/slash wives are seen as the primary helping spirits of the shaman, who assist them in their work and help them gain power in the world of the spirit. These relationships sh- shamans have with their spirit spouses—sorry—the uh, relationships shamans have with their spirit spouses may be expressed in romantic, sexual, or purely symbolic ways and may include gender transformation as a part of correctly pairing with their spouse. Shamans report engaging with their spirit spouses through dreams, trance, and other ritual elements. In some cultures, gaining a spirit spouse is a necessary and expected part of initiation into becoming a shaman. Evidence of spirit spouses may be seen in non-shamanic cultures as well, including dreams about Christ by nuns, who are considered to be brides of Christ. You know, I don't think I'm going to read each of these, but just to give you an idea, they go through different areas where this is a a human uh, uh, a human fundamental, perhaps uh, in South America, shamans uh, have spirit spouses in Oceania, the Sandwich Islands, uh, the Kaluli people from uh, New Guinea. That is, uh, I'm going to read a bit from my anthropology book now. It's where I first, when I heard about spirit spouses. This is one of the things I read about in the section. This is from Culture Sketches, uh, Case Studies in Anthropology, in the section called Mediums and Witches, in the chapter on the Kaluli. It is through mediums that uh, it is through mediums that the Kaluli have knowledge of the unseen world. Men who have married spirit women in a dream gain access to this world when they have a child with their spirit wife. As the medium sleeps, he leaves his body behind and wanders the unseen world. Once he is gone, spirits can enter his body and use his mouth to speak to the living. So, that is just, it's very interesting to me how these, all these different kind of cultures have this, this common belief I'll continue now. There's uh, uh, instances of this in China, in Siberia, um, in Europe. There's this idea of the uh, incubus and succubus, these kind of spirit spouses. But these kind of have a demonic aspect to them. They're seen kind of in a negative light that they're supposed to... to, uh, be working for the devil or, or, or something like that. Uh, in Africa, the Awe, the uh, Bale tribe, various tribes of southern Nigeria, such as the Aruba or the Igbo, and then that idea has, has continued into neo-paganism, which uh, is interesting, but I don't think I'll read much about that. But I guess... Oh, I guess the idea I just want to try to like I said before to ground these these uh, symbolic images that we encounter in near death experiences in our daily lives and the fact that this is so widespread is is absolutely fascinating that this idea of having a a uh, spiritual partner I mean we we even saw it in that description of uh, that I read earlier the the quora question the answer from the the therapist that was talking about you know people often dream of an unknown partner this is uh, in union psychology uh, would re- refer to the archetype of the anima or animus or the unconscious half of of uh, your psyche uh, represented by a uh, a dream woman in in a man, or a dream man and a woman. So this is quite widespread and and absolutely fascinating that it would it would appear in a near death experience. Um, I don't know as to the as to the uh, moral uh, and ethical inclinations of these beings. Uh, I don't know I don't know if they're good, I don't know if they're bad. it might depend on your relationship with yourself. I don't know apparently in in at least in Europe the idea of an incubus or succubus a a, a spirit spouse is associated with uh, the devil um with uh this kind of evil influence, but you know it can also be. A uh, perfectly beautiful and good relationship that one can have with a spiritual partner, I suppose, as as evidenced in uh, different uh, cultures around the world. So, I, I don't know about the—if <laughs> you encounter a, uh, a spiritual partner, how you're supposed to uh, interact with them, I would suppose you do so cautiously— I can't go wrong with that, but, and, you know, I also don't have any information on, on how to encounter one of these, one of, a spiritual partner of your own. I guess it, it might be something that just kind of happens naturally or through meditation or through trance or what have you. So I, I, it's something I'd like to learn more about, but regardless, the the reason I'm Trying to look at it in some depth is because we, like I mentioned at the very start, is that we have this symbolic vocabulary, this this symbolic language that Hafur feels is uh, crucial to understanding what is essentially human, and here we have this motif, this this uh, this I don't know phenomena that that is present in a near death experience which points to its centrality in in our lives and if you consider at least our lives here well, well I'm in in uh, the United States but in in the west in general we don't really have this as a cultural practice we don't have this this relationship with a inner man or an inner inner woman and perhaps that's why we we feel like we don't know ourselves uh, perhaps if there there's a way for this to get culturally enshrined um and and be taken seriously it's it's very easy to to dismiss this as some kind of new age you know uh, crap <laughs> and i i understand that it's it sounds kind of crazy but I would uh, definitely recommend taking it seriously considering it's one of the fundamental uh, recurring patterns that we see in, in culture, cultures around the world and in shamanism. And, and that apparently this is a way that you can get to know yourself and, and the world beyond these uh, different... Uh, cultures that they mention that they, they uh, say, kind of say the same thing over and over again that these uh, spiritual spouses are a a way to get to know this spiritual realm this this uh, inner world so to speak and and in the passage about the Kaluli that I read from my book it's it it talks about how they gain access to the this spiritual realm when they have a child with their, their spiritual spouse. And again, we, ha- we <laughs> have this uh, image appearing in Huffer's near-death experience that she's pregnant when this, this beautiful spiritual husband emerges from the water. And, and as we can see from the rest of her near-death experiences she has maintained a connection to something beyond herself in in form of intuitions. And she mentions biolocation, which I'm not exactly sure what that is. I would assume it's being in two different places at once. So this is something that... Um, it's very interesting. I, I don't know how else to put it. Maybe the more we can learn about ourselves and our practices and our culture and, and what it means to be human, the more we can learn about what is beyond us, what is in this spiritual realm. So she learns that the kind of love that is closest to divine love in this life is that which we feel for a small child. That seems that seems right to me. I don't know how to, to expand upon that. It, you know children are <laughs> they're they're crazy and they're goofy and they're all over the place but god we just love them don't we so then she hears a a voice within her heart she says it says through love you will understand everything the essence the essence the essence and she feels tremendous peace and she uh, she says she feels this peace because she has a greater understanding of life's meaning. And then she, she sees a light in the sky, and there's this flow of codes and wisdom d- about everything that flows down into her, about creation and the world and, and beings that live in other universes and just this kind of download of cosmic information. And she says that we, we, we make distinctions. Uh, the the d- mistakes we make are made out of ignorance, um, because we've forgotten the truth of, of what we are, I suppose. And and then she goes on to dis- she merges with this light, and she uh, describes it as a plural unity. Now. Uh, Many times so far I've in near-death experiences we've talked about the uh, images of opposites coming together a complexio oppositorum the um, the tension of opposites and here there's she kind of puts a, a name on on the nature of, of of life and and the universe and she calls it a plural unity um, and I, I think that's an interesting way of putting it, and, and a a fascinating conf, uh, concept that everything is one and yet has all these variations, and all these variations make up one thing, I suppose. That's probably a vast oversimplification oversimpli- of, of how we can think about it, but I love that that term that she uses, that it's a plural unity, and that everything is different yet the same, and everything is the same yet different. It's just mind boggling. And then she goes on to say that she has an aha feeling in her heart and she learns what she had forgotten. There's this idea, I think it was a Platonic idea from from Plato, that all knowledge is just remembering. And we we have this this feeling from, from time, at least I have. I don't know about you, but this feeling, like when you learn something new, it's like, oh, I already knew that. I, it's it's something that was within me that I had forgotten, and and she she clearly outlines this this feeling as as kind of an aha that she she can't explain with with words or human language, and then she has a a kind of spark notes version of uh, of what she learned. And and these are just they're they're gems they're they're great. Uh, she mentions that that we live in a plural unity or oneness, which is u- uh, unity and plurality or plurality and unity. She says that I was everything and everything was me. Uh, she describes that there's she says there's no external God but God is in everything and everything in God. Something I've I've heard before and that resonates with me. She says that God is everything and nothing at the same time. Again, we have these opposites. Uh, fully, it it, it's, it really is. It, it 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 encompasses everything. It's a totality. There's there's nothing that that God is, and there's nothing that God isn't. It's it's just. I guess that's the definition of profound, huh? When you don't have any words to describe it. She says that death is a metamorphosis of time, an illusion from our mental concepts, that time does not exist and space does not exist, and they're just illusions. That's a fairly common idea that comes from near-death experiences. So, she, and then she kind of closes out, there's actually quite a bit, but she talks about living through love and how the essence of life is total nothingness, and that nothingness has is constructed of multi, a multitude of phenomena, which in turn are formed by other untold multitude of phenomena to the point of infinity. Yeah, that sounds about as as mind bending as <laughs> as as you can get. But I I gotta say I I admire her her ability to to try and capture these concepts in language. It's, it's, you can hear me stumbling around trying to talk about these things, and God, it's hard. So uh, I think she did a phenomenal job, at least trying to describe what she learned. The known universe is a fraction of infinite reality that by love has become finite, that has become finite pieces in our temporal hands. So... Just absolutely fascinating. She she says when she returned to this life, she felt like she was crammed back into a very heavy space, into a heavy, dense body. And that is something we often hear in other near-death experiences as well. The the limitations of the body cramping in whatever she was in this other realm, pure consciousness, what have you, a a spiritual body. It kind of varies, but she and then she she talks about how she had trouble adjusting i suppose that her loved one's families and family and friend were were kind of like nothing to her she she saw them as as i don't know parts in this great kind of cosmic play and and she there's this kind of dissociation that i guess we we kind of talked about when we were going through the different after effects of near de- near death experiences a few episodes ago so it's interesting that she she gave us a little more info about that about how she felt when she came back and she talks about how she when she tried and tell people they thought she was crazy and i we don't think she's crazy we want to understand and i i honestly she she did a, a great job trying to to talk about these things so she says that her, her experience gradually faded, um, but she still has these various psychic abilities that, that pop up from time to time, experiences of telepathy and intuition, out-of-body experiences and bilocation. Perhaps that is a result of her, her interaction with her true husband and merging with the light. So I'll, I'll kind of close where I started, I suppose. I know that everything I saw originates from thoughts or the universal mind. It is projected in images and events that interact with the lucid consciousness as an experience, that this whole experience is part of the infinitude of that which is real on every plane or level ex- of existence that we want to invent or divide into pieces or divide into pieces so that our temporal mind can decipher can decipher it despite its limitations. Goodness gracious, that's that's a hell of a sentence. It seems deeply, deeply true to me. It has it rings of of very true of experience that it, it not, doesn't necessarily come from us. Our thoughts they they kind of just emerge emerge out of the darkness and i don't know if we can fully claim ownership over the things that that comes to us images and events and that's where i we kind of started out with this idea of of these archetypal forms and images that emerge out of out of our deeper selves that that we if we interact with them not only can we learn perhaps more about about the world beyond, but also about ourselves and and what we truly are and what we're here to do. So she uses a couple analogies, which I thought were very nice. She says we can use the image of steam that has been converted into water and then becomes ice. The ice forgets that it has this free-flowing expansion to it. We are this ice that doesn't... And that we don't understand that we we have this ability innate in us. and she finishes off with with the idea that from but one piece of clay many forms can be made and that's that's the idea of unity in plurality or plur, plurality in unity. It's all from one piece of clay that all these different forms can be made. And I mentioned in the introduction that, I suppose uh, over the past few weeks, I've seen how important our stories are and making sense of, of life and tragedy and pain and suffering and good times and the bad. You know, these past few weeks, there's been a lot of tears, a lot of crying, but there's also been laughter and and remembering good times and It's all kind of one big jumbled mess and we're trying to find our way through it. And on our way, we we rely upon these stories that we have. And stories and mythology tend to get a, a bad rap. People tend to think of them like they're made up, like they're, you know, fiction. But I don't think of mythology... And our religious stories as as fiction. I, I think of them as psychological fact. I don't know of their reality in person, whether they actually happen the way they're written, or I'm agnostic on that point. But I do know that these stories, they emerged out of something, someone. And they emerged unconsciously. They were not invented out of whole cloth that they were given to someone that they were experienced by someone these mythological motifs and archetypes and and forms and patterns they're they're too profound for one person to just sit down during lunch and write down on a on a scroll or something it's it's something that is experienced through our dreams and our fantasies and our rituals and trances that we've been trying to understand through millennia. We've been trying to understand these stories that are given to us and they they may very well may have had this aspect of reality to them. I, I don't know they they can find, outlets and certain figures and certain events that happen. They attach themselves to the, the outside world and the things that happen in history. But, But they are these stories, they're the true meaning of the word religion. Religion the etymology of the word mean, means to uh, to link back, to connect again. It's uh, the word religare, re meaning again, and ligare meaning to bind or to hold fast, which is also, I believe, where we get the word ligament from that same root, which is connects our joints. And so we have this word uh, religion, meaning to connect back to something and what that something is are these stories are are these this world of of symbols and and fantastic things that that we can experience so that is that is just I'm very humbled to be to be Here and to be able to experience it. So I think we'll end there. (sighs) Thank you so much for listening. I I hope that this made sense to anybody. Sometimes I just feel like I'm rambling, but I'm trying to think about these things and figure them out as I go, or try to formulate them and as we've discussed many times, it can be quite hard to put it into words sometimes. So I hope uh, you got something out of this story and um, this experience. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Hafer for sharing it. It's, it's truly an honor to, to be able to, to share these stories and, and, and uh, be part of this. So thank you. If you would like to reach out to me, you can do so at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. If you want to share something with me, ask me a question. I still want to do a Q&A episode, and I've I've only gotten two questions so far. So please feel free to send those in if there's something that you want to ask and we can talk about. I think that'd be cool to do. If you want, you can follow us on on Facebook, the Facebook page for the podcast. I've got some episodes on YouTube. Not enough, but I'll keep working on that. There's The podcast is on Spotify. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you have, because that just helps out the visi- visibility of of the podcast and gets the word out. So that would be great. And if you get any value out of this podcast and want to help support uh, me uh, producing it, uh, you can check out my Patreon page, which is just Sam Rees Near Death Experiences. So now we will end with a quote. And this quote is quite personal to me. It was just used and used in my girlfriend's brother's funeral and it will be going on his tombstone and I love it it's it's beautiful so this is from Isaiah 40:31 but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength they will soar high on wings like eagles they will run and not grow weary they will walk and not faint